This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I think many people in the room know who Elizabeth is, but for those of you that don't, um, uh, Elizabeth is, uh, works for the Regional Center um, as a client advocate. Um, she's been very active in disability rights, um, and her voice is one that we all appreciate hearing from at this conference. She's been uh, spoken at the conference a number of times as well. So, um, so today our panel, I have a couple questions for the panel, and after the panel we will open this up for some Q&A uh, for, for all the speakers. But we started out talking about CCS and the coordinated care for children's services. Um, everyone has mentioned the fact that there's barriers to health care for adults, um, that there's uh, sort of a, a, a blind spot in the system when we go from childhood care to adult care. And what about aging? What happens as people with cerebral palsy and other disabilities age? Uh, where are we at with, with that? What are some ideas in terms of what you all feel people need um, and any kinds of solutions that you might want to propose for this difficult topic? So panelists, please respond to that question. Okay. I guess I will go first. You said what, what are the challenges of when you age with cerebral palsy, the biggest challenge for myself is wanting to keep the keep the physical um my my degree of maintaining my arms strength and being able to keep turning myself over and be as functional as I can be and the biggest barrier to that is medical and not not being able to get really the physical therapy that I used to get when I was a kid. So yeah. Um, can I? Oh, ooh, can I um, echo that a little bit? Um, one of the big challenges I see, um, Elizabeth, I agree that um, as young adults grow out of CCS and they have this. I mean, one of the the good parts about um, having the physical and occupational therapists being involved with that age group is they can get the equipment needs taken care of. And then when they age out of CCS, 
it is very difficult to find physical and occupational therapists or uh, physiatrists, physical medicine and rehabilitation doctors, or even some neurologists who are able to uh, assess equipment needs and be able to then provide a prescription that is a, a nuanced prescription for, um, for adults who have special seating needs and things like that. So, um, you know, my suggestion is if it's possible to reach out to your counties, if you live in California, to reach out to your uh, your CCS county person, your, your, your medical director or that program, and see if they can search out someone in the adult care community who could fill that role and across different uh, insurance systems. Like, so one of the challenges for us as, as our kids grow out into adults um, having equipment needs is to find, let's say, you have, you're part of San Francisco Health Plan, um, but you're only able to see the people in Brown and Toland. And Brown and Toland only provides care for CPMC. And then at CPMC, who is that person who can provide that care? So across systems, you need to have a person in place for UCSF, for CPMC, uh, for the general hospital. Um, so the different care providers in the community and the different insurers have different people who might be available. And, and it's important for us as the medical program in CCS to have that contact and for the community then to maybe call in, even if you're not a CCS member, maybe we have the contact who we could be able to put you in contact with um, if you have those equipment needs. That's one idea uh, for adult care, how we could help. Um, from a pediatric standpoint. So this is, <clears throat> this is really hard for me to talk. I have a two-hour instructional course on this, if you'd like to hear. <laughs> now, um, I've really spent the last 25 years of my life working on this because it's, so, it, it's such a huge problem. As we said, there's more adults with cerebral palsy than children, and, and, it's, a, and it's a huge problem. We start talking about transition at a really young age in a program at age 14, start talking to them about you know, who you're going to see. The problem is, is we do a really good job at that, but then there's, like you said, there's no one on the other end to receive those patients. Um, and that's, that, that's just the challenge. I, I've actually testified before Congress about this, and it actually comes from a law back in the 60s where many of our, many of our adults, many of our children with uh, these disorders like cerebral palsy may not li have lived long enough to, you know, past 18 or 21. So all the funding sources were set up that way. And unfortunately, this, 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 the funding sources were also set up to way medical school and residency training is, is that there's a pediatric training and there's adult training. And so it, it's not even fair to ask an internist to take care of a child with intellectual disability, cerebral palsy, all kinds, all those problems with no training. And, and it's just, it's, and with Medi-Cal rates. <clears throat> they, you know, they don't get paid anything to see someone that has these problems. I, those are all issues I've de dealt with. I actually had the dean of our medical school totally buy into what I was saying. We met with the internal medicine department, all those departments, and finally someone right at the end goes, now who's paying, who's the funding agency for this? And I said Medi-Cal. And one of the guys just took his book and then closed it and go, well, we're done now. We're not even going to do this. And the dean goes, but you have to. And, I, and, he, and they all walked out. And I go, so, I mean, it tells you what deans can do. Um, but I think this, this, this is a problem more uh, along the 
we have to start early, and we have to find people that we can train on the other side. I've taken the other tact, as I told you today, where we set up the program in a children's hospital. If they're over 35, I do surgery or any procedures. We do it in an adult hospital, but I'm the one that's doing that. But obviously, I'm not going to be there forever. I'm hiring people younger than I am that are doing this. And so we're going to have a sustainable model in San Diego. But someone just asked me in the, the question section, who north of Ventura County can I, can they, will see an adult? And I don't know a single person. And maybe you all do, but I don't know anyone who will see an adult with a disability. So it's a huge problem, and uh, I'm sure that's why you're asking us. You can't retire, by the way. I can't retire. So one of the things I'm thinking of... Um, uh, Hank, as you're talking, also, right now, our, um, our, our medical care, our health care is very uh, evidence-based driven, and we have lots of clinical guidelines, but do we have a clinical guideline for cerebral palsy, uh, for a lifespan approach to cerebral palsy? We don't, and I'm trying to... The hard part for me doing research in this area is I see a lot of the adults with cerebral palsy, but I don't see all the adults with cerebral palsy. So my, as a scientist, it's hard for me to, I can just put out little papers that are anecdotal. Like I saw 5,100 patients. Well, what big deal? There could have been 12,000 patients. And then when I say 25% of them have bipolar disorder, out of what? And, and, and that's, that's the hardest part about doing real science. I could do really crummy science, but maybe I have to do something to, to put that out there. And I think that's the hardest part. You mentioned the, the adult transition to Medi-Cal. One of the things that's happened to me and my program is I used to see, I really did see almost all the adults with cerebral palsy. And then um, all the adults, I don't know if you know this happened, when you're over age of 18 or 21, I think it's 18, you have to go into a managed care Medi-Cal system. So in San Diego, we have five of them. I'm not contracted with any of those adult systems. And so patients that I saw for 20 years can no longer see me and they're seeing someone that knows nothing about cerebral palsy. Mm. Some adult total joint surgeon happened to be signed up on that managed care Medi-Cal system, and parents are crying and coming to see me. And I see a lot of people for free, but my hospital's not buying that very much. Yeah. Um, your question is really good. What are models? What are things that we can look to um, for adult care? I mean, the fact that there is a lack of care coordination um, in adult care um, in in the, at the state, and when you're talking about Medicaid and Medi-Cal, um, there's something called the Integrated Systems of Care Division, and California Children's Services follows underneath that, but so does, um, I think, wraparound adult care, and there's an HIV um, hospice program, and, and, and so there is a real, a real emphasis at the state to look at care coordination uh, from a whole, whole person uh, perspective. They don't have the funding in place yet. There's a program uh, out of uh, out of Oregon called the Niche Program. I think it's called Novel Interventions for Children's Healthcare, um, and this is a an in-home provider type of care coordination where people actually are paid by the managed care providers to to um, sort of be a family extension and work with the family, and they've they've shown a significant decrease in cost for care for uh, medically and socially complex families. Um, and so for a subset of those, I think the niche pro program, uh, they're trying to 
they're trying to break that out in uh, in California in some places as pilot programs at UCSF. They're looking at it, um, and I think that has some promise for adult care. If we can look at models for the most uh, highly affected families, um, but a care coordination program is, I think, a very important thing to look at for adult care in the future. I also think a really uh, is. I don't know how it would happen. Have CCS last for your entire life? Why? Why does it stop at 18, 21? Why not have CCS for your whole life? Right. Um, Ryan, were you trying to get a word in edgewise there? I was just gonna say, from my perspective, I completely agree, and I'm still experience the lack of um, medical professionals that have an understanding of aging with CP and with a disability. Um, I myself, my primary physician why he's my primary, he was very frank in, in saying, I don't, I don't know what it's going to look like for you at 60, um, but I'm willing to read and continue to learn. So that's why we're a team. Um, but when I think in terms of the, the foundation, one of the things um, we're funding is actually a, a pilot project with the National Alliance to Advance Adolescent Health that run the GOT transition program um, through HHS, um, but they are working with a um, managed care organization in DC that is working with um, United Health, and it's a, um, as far as we're aware, the first of its kind. Um, in addition to advancing the the six core elements of um, successful transition and all that, it's looking at a value based payment model for both sides of the process. So both for the pediatric provider and the adult provider and, and working with the um, payer to say, if you're spending more time to help blank individual successfully transition to the adult provider, if you as the adult provider are spending more time to onboard them into your practice, into your systems, we're willing to pay for that. So it's a, um, it's a three-year pilot project, um, and it, it's in its first year. But it is, I think it's a piece because you, it is educating the, the funders themselves and kind of what, what is actually needed time-wise and then getting the dollars to the pediatric and adult providers that, you know, you need to be paid for the good work you're doing. That's in Washington, D.C.? Yes. Washington. So you mentioned about Brown and Brown and Tolan. I was a Brown and patient for a while. And I have to say, the doctor who I went to, that's why she's not my doctor anymore. She uh, she uh, would say, "Oh, don't worry about how you feel. It just gets people palsy." And I was like, "So every time I feel good, it has to do with my cerebral palsy." Everybody think just because you have CP 
Well, at least she thought just because you have CP, there's nothing else that can be wrong with you. And I thought about this, and I was like, you're not the doctor for me. And I went back to UC, and I went to see my old provider. I only left her because my mom wanted me to, because she thought she was too radical and was putting a lot of ideas in my head <laughs> about, about wanting to be more independent. But I think it still goes back, back to, I was born in the 70s, 1970, which back then we didn't have much of a life expectancy from doctors. So I can't blame doctors back then. They didn't know much about cerebral poverty. So between the doctors and my father's mom, I wasn't giving much hope at all to do a lot of things. So I never got the therapy that I wanted or needed. But now it's like I'm 49, I'll be 50 this year, and I want to maintain my physical ability. I still want to be able to drive my chair as long as I can. I still want to be myself again. So I want to keep the mobility going as long as I can. And that's what I'm trying to fight for. Thank you, Liz. So full disclosure, I'm the old radical provider. <laughs> Um, one of the things that, that we started the conference with was a presentation from DDS, and we heard about the regional center system. In California, we heard about the increased census for uh, clients in the regional center. So, but I don't think I heard much about an increase in budget for the regional center. And seriously, one of my concerns is when... Um, uh, when there a client, there is a client who is a client of the regional center getting lifelong services. If caseloads are so huge that they're seeing their case coordinator or service coordinator once a year, that's not very close case management. And I and I think what happens in the adult world is that uh, there's still a perception of the primary care provider, not a team. And I think we're trying in primary care to build more of a team. But I think that's really essential to, um, to provide care for people with complex disabilities. It's not just one person, but I think the regional center funding absolutely 
has to increase because we're going to be doing the same circle of, uh, of um, uh, disparity. Question. Both of our awesome um, panelists who have had this as part of their lived experience have mentioned having that transition where your parents may have started to differ from you or you needed to have your own independent voice. And I have one patient who I love and adore who's 16 and is starting to deal with some depression and anxiety related to some of her chronic pain and whatnot. Um, And one of the things I'm struggling with is... Her parents don't believe in mental health. They didn't want to talk about meditation and ways to deal with pain. They wanted to try more natural, which I think is just laying on of hands and praying for this family. And I'm struck with, I already struggle with this with my other adolescent patients, how to get them independent care that they are consenting to that's against the wishes of their family. But in this particular patient, when she's dependent on her parents for everything from feeding to, you know, toileting and all of those things, and of course for transportation, she can't um, communicate with her hands, so I can't send her emails, which is the way I get around it with some of my adolescent patients. Um, And I'm just struck with how to try to transition that, and I'm sure others have experienced the same, and so just... How would you suggest working with the families when they're not ready to give their kids a voice um, because of their own issues? I would like to respond to that. I, myself, grew up with a very uh, controlling father mom who said, I love you. You can do anything you put your mind to. But on the other hand, she never wanted me to do anything. She never wanted me to try to do anything. And it was a real struggle. And you talk about depression. Yeah, I suffered from depression big time. I I hated my disability. I hated uh, not being able to move on my own. And I hated having to depend on her because I felt like I was just a paycheck to her. But then when I got older, you know, that's where my team started growing and I had people in my life along with Jerry Collins Bry, who's my primary physician. And when I found my voice, I was like, you know, I'm more than 
what my father and mom said I am. And even though you say, even though your patient can't talk, you you need to fight, fight hell and high water for her. You have to go above and beyond what her parents say. I'm sorry, but I'm going to say the hell where moms believe. Because at the end of the day, her parents are not going to be here and she's going to need to have the life of her own. So you need to be her advocate. You need to fight for the right of her. So don't give up on your patience. I know it seems like it's a battle, but if you need my help, just give me a call and I'll fight right along with you because her voice needs to be heard. Thank you, Liz. Um, Ryan, did you want to comment? I just wanted to add from uh, my perspective, I have in, in some ways been in a similar scenario in that I was dependent on my parents for um, transportation. And I, I um, definitely remember those times where certain things would happen in the doctor's office, and then you know the trip home was always an education and a, a process of it in its own self. Um, but from my perspective, I think what was helpful and what definitely stayed with me and, and kind of gave me the bearing that um, paid off later on in life um, is if you can continue to model and find ways to support um, your patient having choice within the room and um, if it includes stopping to take the moment you know, with, within appointments with the parents there to say, um, let's, let's hear what your child has to say. Or, you know, side comments to the parents talking about, well, you know, you know pretty soon they're going to have more choices. Um, so it's just emphasizing kind of choice. Choices need to happen, and they are going to happen. It's, it's a part of life. And as much as you can kind of feed that into your process, I think that that lays the seed for work that can occur later on and that further advocacy that Liz mentioned that is needed. But um, just laying the foundation of choice is an expectation and part of life. I'm Richard Goldwasser, I'm actually speaking later today, and that's exactly what I wanted to just echo, is that you know, as a primary care physician, the idea of meeting privately with the, with your, with the, the patient, it's really, really powerful. And similarly, you have the opportunity to schedule appointments privately with the parent, and then 
maybe even all together, it's really, really powerful, as we already heard from your examples, of being taken seriously, given an opportunity to, to speak privately, being able to give an, given the opportunity to speak. It's not family therapy in 15 minutes in primary care setting, but it kind of is. So I love what you're saying. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you all. How many people in here are from California? What a group of advocates for people with disabilities we have. This is such a complex issue. I have spent so many hours of my life as has Hank and everybody here, in meetings, all these damn meetings, that are addressing this problem. Medi-Cal does not pay for chronic conditions without the exceptions of those that have so-called adverse risk diagnoses. That's why there is increased payment for taking care of patients with HIV and a handful of other diagnostic entities. Chronic conditions like cerebral palsy is not considered an adverse risk. Why not? We need to write, call, visit our legislators and get them to impose on Medi-Cal the importance of making cerebral palsy classified as an adverse risk. Diagnostic codes are a complex system of issues that entail the California Medical Association, the legislatures, and the American Medical Association, but all politics is local. Start it at the grassroots Let's get cerebral palsy determined to be an adverse risk and get the commensurate reimbursement that should be deserved to care for people with special health care needs. Bodies are like Porsches or maybe Teslas now. I don't drive either one. But they need constant calibration, and that's what physical and occupational and speech therapy is about and what durable medical equipment that needs adjustment as people's bodies change is about. So let's start an advocacy movement right here tomorrow, Monday. Call your legislator and call your doctor and say, if you're a member of the CMA, this needs to come before the House of Delegates make cerebral palsy an adverse risk diagnosis. Thank you, Lucy. So um, Mark Del Monte gave us a great talk about uh, messaging. So that's a great, simple, clear message of something that we could do uh, for advocacy. Thank you, Lucy. That's great. Go ahead. My name is Karen Epstein, and I work part-time since retirement for the school, for the school system. I am a nurse. And um, the, um, I wanted to address the mental health aspect that can impact on the schooling. 
And there's been a pressure, a lot of pressure in California through um, the IEP to provide mental health counseling if it impacts on schooling, um, social in, within the social area. The depression can pull down grades. There's ways to show that um, the that the mental health is some aspects of mental health are impacting on the schooling, and through the IEP, the school district's responsible for getting counseling. And sometimes they'll pull, a good counselor will pull in the family and help to smooth out some of the edges of, of with the parents of helping to pull back some so the young person can grow up. I am Dr. Faith Tanner. I work at the Regional Center as a psychologist. Um, another, I think, really strong need for an advocacy, aside from money, is training. Mm -hmm. 20 years ago, I graduated from graduate school in New York City. And as an intern, the, the psychiatrists in the ER were calling me to do IQ testing because they thought someone might be a little slow. I know a ton of preschool teachers who take three years of courses and have no idea what anything aside from typical development is. So it's for everything that's covered under developmental disabilities, whether it be intellectual disability, autism, cerebral palsy, muscular dystrophy, whatever. It would be great to have the money, but if we have the money and we don't have the professionals, what good does the money do? Early intervention, so many people are going for the BCBA training or the ABA training. We don't have people to simply teach regular developmental skills to people that are our clients. So it's not just money. It's also the professionals that know what to do. You know, I was in high school, my first year high school. Well, actually... My second year I was really, really depressed and I felt signs of suicidal tendencies. But psychologists wouldn't take me serious. They'd be like, oh, how can you do anything to harm yourself. And I was like, really? I I look at a flight of stairs and wish I could go down them. You really would ask me, how could I do suicidal tendencies? Are you stupid? <laughs> and the answer yeah, the answer is, yes, you're st stupid. I'm telling you, I'm in p pain here. And you're, you're acting like, oh, you have a disability. I'm telling you, I'm crying out for help. And you're not listening to me. What the hell's wrong with you? You, we need to really look at mental health as a huge thing in the disability community. 
because a lot of people think people with disabilities, oh, they're so cute. Oh, their life is just, they're special. God bless those people. God doesn't have nothing to do with this. It's me. I'm talking to you. And you need to listen. People need to wake up and listen to people with disabilities more. Um, I just was really struck by that primary care physician who got up and talked about uh, that patient who has limited communication abilities and is trapped in a situation where she is dependent on her parents' transportation but doesn't agree with her parents' management of her life. And this is a very, very difficult situation. Um, And I think... There are opportunities to pull, to, to give her an opportunity to speak one-on-one. I imagine that her parents aren't with her all the time. And to try and find out when those times are, and then be able to bring in other You can't do this by yourself. So don't underestimate the opportunity that is there to actually mobilize other programs and agencies and people who want to help and who are able to be part of the solution. Um, In San Francisco, for example, we have an independent living resource center. And to be able to start formulating a plan as she becomes 18, so that when she is able to make her own decisions, that there is a way forward in helping her to, to extract herself a little bit from her parents' control. I think that that's a really, really important thing for you to try and work on with partners and you just talking about it is a great first step, um, and to involve other people to come up with a solution, because that's very, very difficult, and I appreciate you bringing that up. Mm-hmm. So just, just one thing, at our hospital, we have a mental health screen of every patient that comes in, um, and I don't know if that's true of all, all places, of, of asking if they have any um, you know, suicidal ideations or, or things like that, and if they do, um, we by our hospital rules, have to, we call in a social worker, and the social worker spends time with them. So my son came in a couple of years, about a year ago, and said, yes, I, have, I want to kill myself. And we, we know he's been talking about this, and, and, and that's why he's seeing a psychiatrist. But then, of course, then they went through the screening, went through the whole thing and said, yes, this is a real, uh, he has a real thing. Like you said, my son's plan is to study he'd drive in front of a car, so he knows he has a plan. Um, but then when we got, they got to the point, said, you know, he probably should be in an inpatient facility, which we thought was a little bit of overkill. And, of course, there are no inpatient facilities for people with cerebral palsy in San Diego. So it was like, so, and it was like, go home. That was it. After we went off, it was two hours, my poor wife. And uh, then he went home and went to, our, to his house, and we went to our house and, you know, next day got together for dinner. But that was about, that was, that was the extent of that. And, and that's true everywhere. There are no adult 
facilities for mental health, as far as I know, um, that can take care of the physical needs of t- someone with, an ad- with uh, cerebral palsy. So there, certainly none in San Diego. There is where you're in San Diego, but here in San Francisco, there's Langley Border up at UC. I've been there um, on the on the 51, 50 back back in the day. Um, but I've been hospitalized for many different reasons. They said I moved from me a wing up at UC say Elizabeth Grisby's ward. <laughs> that would be really cool. Uh, uh, but, but, um, yeah, depression is real. And I can honestly say it does rear its very ugly head at times for me. Even though I look like I got it all together, I work for the Golden Gate Regional Center as the rights advocate. I live in my own place with supportive living, but as Jerry calls by, can testify. Sometimes I don't go to her office for medical reasons. Sometimes I call her up and be like, you know, Jerry, I need to talk. So can I come in and see you? And it doesn't even have to be for a physical reason. I just need to talk about what's going on, the struggles I have to keep my head above the water. And and yes, I do see a therapist on a regular basis, and she's damn good at what she does. But depression is real. And for people with disabilities, we have a lot to do with. And people need to take our serious, like your son, when he was like, he he wanted to go sit in front of a car. I've done that. I took myself into the middle of the street and I wanted, well, I felt like I wanted a car to run into me, but I was really crying out for help. I wanted somebody to take me out of my foster mom's 
home when I was a teenager. I just wanted the pain to stop. I wasn't happy and people, social workers were pulled by my boss and mom. The only one that wasn't really poor was my tutor that I had in high school. That when I was in ninth grade, I had an operation, so I had to sit my ninth grade year out. But my tutor kept on saying, you can have a good life. You can have the life you wanted, you want your mom. You don't have to let your mom control you. And from that, I started believing in myself. But it took a while. And I'm a work in progress. <laughs> it's you sure are, Liz. <laughs> Just a, a couple comments about, about mental health. I think, again, it goes back to training uh, and um, um, making sure that mental health issues are right up there, right up front with all the physical health issues that occur with cerebral palsy and other developmental disabilities. It, it is difficult sometimes to diagnose mental health issues for people who um, communicate um, in different ways, but please stay tuned for this afternoon because the Goldwasser team is gonna talk about, uh, about some of those challenges as well as some um, treatments. There, there are some programs here in San Francisco that do have uh, um, a mental health, some of the community mental health programs also uh, have a special focus on taking care of people with developmental disabilities, but the wait time is very long. Um, and oftentimes if you refer to some of the more traditional practices, they'll say, we actually don't do that. So it's, it's really, it's another gap in the system, uh, and it does fall upon primary care oftentimes to help fill some of that gap. And part of that, as you say, Liz, it's about listening to people, acknowledging, and then working hard to trying to find some solutions. Um, but that acknowledgement, I think, can go a long way uh, to, um, to helping somebody feel as if there's somebody on their team that's gonna be able to find a solution at some point. There's one thing that really bothers me. A lot of people think people with CP have a cognitive uh, disability, but that's not always the case. But we're always, well, some of us are always looked upon as having a cognitive disability. Now, don't get me wrong, there's nothing, absolutely nothing, with having a cognitive disability, 
But if you don't have one, then if, like, don't keep, don't keep treating me like I do. Don't keep talking down to me or being very condescending because I found that out as a lot of uh, specialists doctor appointments and I had to do a lot of educating because it really got on my nerve and the one place I did a lot of educating me and the nurse a really good friend now. I like her now and she likes me me. But there there was a time when I went to Jerry and I was like, You you have to help me talk to her because Every time I go there, she says how cute I am and want to pinch my cheeks. And I'm like, this is disgusting. <laughs> I mean, I know I'm adorable, but <laughs> I'm not. You don't, you don't need to pinch my cheeks. But to Jerry's advocacy for me, she talked to her. And now we have a very nice, we established that, I'm a, that I am an adult. I don't have a cognitive disability, so don't treat me like a kid. Education is the key. Communication is really the key. You need to talk to people as who they are. Thank you, Liz. Great point. I have a, a follow-up uh, question about that because I'm a school nurse and I work with children preschool through sixth grade in a special education program. And this is the second year I've come to this conference, and both times I've been so struck and moved to see um, young adults and older adults with some of the same disabilities that my students have and to see how um, capable they are at that stage of their you know, development and wondering how often at this young age we are missing not understanding people's cognitive abilities because there's communication disconnect. And um, thinking about how being misunderstood at that early age contributes to the development of mental health challenges later in life. And, you know, our young uh, adults with autism yesterday talking about how they, you know, one fellow learned to read using stupid pecs, you know, and, and just wondering how many of our students are feeling that way about what special education is offering them with the best of intentions. So I'm just curious if you have any um, insight and reflections on what we can do for 
children in those early years to help unlock um, those abilities and to help them feel understood even when there are challenges with communication. Who wants to take that question? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great question. And, and just going back to the, the whole um, communication at, at the doctor's office or at the school or whatever um, is you know, accepting everyone as a, a full human being and treating everybody as a full human being is, I think, the, the best thing to do. And, you know, in, in my clinic, I don't, I rarely, even in my sports clinic, I don't talk to the parents. I talk to the kids. And, and the same thing with the children with cerebral palsy. I, I talk to them, and then maybe I'll turn and talk to the dad or the mom in the room um, eventually because many I don't get all the answers I need. But that's, I think that's, that's one way to, to, to address it. As far as the communication um, needs, you know, I've seen communication, speech and communication over you know, the last, my son for 37 years, but also you know, in my practice about how people don't, um, they, they just don't talk to people with disabilities. Just like you said, they talk around them and, and don't, don't assess them. And I think our, in our school districts, it's, um, that, that's assessed really early, and I'm, I'm sure in yours as well. And now that we have devices that are affordable, um, some of the communication devices are, are helpful. I think when, you, when everybody tried to get a Dynavox that cost $6,000, it just didn't happen. And then now that we have an iPad with a $400 um, app that you can put on it, I think that's really changed um, at least the augmentative communication. But the, um, just you know, the more speech and communication that we have in the school districts is um, really changing in, my, in our school districts, I'll have to say. I'm actually proud of our school districts. They've done a really good job. Um, <laughs> that's really difficult. I think we're screwing up a lot. Um, I think that we're missing a lot of the kids who have potential for gaining communication early on. Um, I don't know what the capacity is for different school districts to do neuropsych testing um, early on and whether that's even effective for uh, identifying opportunities for children to be able to communicate uh, earlier than we would think. So um, that's a great question. I think you being an advocate for, you know, if you see a child who seems to be trying to communicate with you and you think that that person needs an advocate to get them further testing, um, one of the tricks of an IEP and schools is that you know a doctor can tell a school, hey, you should do an IEP, and the school is not legally bound to actually do an IEP. But if the parents say, I want you to do an assessment on my child, then that school has to do it. And so I think that maybe telling the family, you know what, I'm really excited about your child. I think they might have an opportunity to communicate. If you ask the school to do this, they legally are bound to do an assessment. And they might, it might not be a perfect assessment, but at least you might be pushing for them to identify the opportunity to communicate earlier than that child otherwise might have had the opportunity. So I'm going to step in for just a second. Um, so um, just while we're on the topic of communication, yesterday we spent some time talking about language nutrition. Um, and then we had a great talk, I thought, about augmentative devices for communication. But I'm also thinking about uh, aging again. And 
Um, how does uh, language, speech, communication needs potentially change? I, I see so many adults who have, may have had some speech therapy as a kid, but then that, that's it. And there's no guidelines, again, about, well, how often should somebody be evaluated uh, for potential augmentative device? And frankly, it's really difficult to find someone to do those assessments. So I just wonder if you can comment about that. So I've had a lot of problems with, uh, as you, with aging. Um, many of my adults who spoke really well as teenagers aren't speaking as well as adults, um, including my son. That, and I've noticed that I think some of that has to do with um, progressive of dystonia. Dystonia does get worse as you get older. And, um, and, it, and I think it really is affecting the, the musculature, the diaphragm and the intercostal muscles and all the things you need to form speech. And um, the, the pressure and the, the volume that I see in many of these patients is really de- diminished. Um, just like any other uh, problem, any subspecialty in adults with cerebral palsy, I have not found an adult uh, speech therapist who will take this challenge on. Because I'm not really sure what, what, well, I don't know medically what, we, what to do for that, and I'm not an expert at all in, that, in this field, but I'm um, hoping to, that's actually one of my goals this year, is to find someone to help with this, this speech therapy, because I, I don't know what you can do for this. Um, but it is a problem. I think it, many, of, many of my patients have lost the ability to be understood as they got older. And the, um, as far as the communication devices, there are some people that, well, my son refuses to use one, because we can understand him most of the time, but it is really kind of a pain to carry another piece of equipment around, and it's not your voice, and it's not exactly what you want to have. Um, it, it's, a, it's a compromise, but I think it's still important to, to have, and um, I, I'm actually surprised how few of my adult patients continue to use their communication devices. I would say one, one out of 100 still keep using it. So, and maybe you can, looks like you're agreeing. No, I was just copying, but yeah, I agree. But um, that does concern me the older I get because my I speak very well, but I I have a hard time. Uh, talking when it gets later in the day because I don't I don't breathe. I have a hard time taking deep breaths I don't know why it's just something I have a hard time doing as I went to see Jerry the other day in her practice and she was like okay take a deep breath and I was like having the hardest time doing that but I noticed when I when I breathe my my voice is a little better, but it's hard not being able to stand because I'm always sitting 
and it's, and it's getting harder and harder to talk. And I won't be, if I ever, if I ever come to, to a time where I need a communication device, I won't be ashamed to use one because I still want to have my say. And I will be using that thing to the best of my ability. I won't be afraid to use it. I'm always looking for a challenge. Oh, we know that. So, Ryan, um, I think you were mentioning to me about a, um, a grant or a project that you were uh, currently funding on communication devices? Or? So, um, our last RFP cycle, um, the foundation actually funded, um, in partnership with Ability Central Philanthropy, five projects that focus on supported decision-making specifically for AAC users. So um, there were two California organizations. Both um, have been at this conference. Um, the Office of Developmental Primary Care and Disability Voices United. And then there were three other grantees from outside of California that were communications first out of DC, um, the Oregon Health and Sciences University, and the University of Kentucky, um, and they're partnering with their dental, dental school. So it's, those are three projects that are specifically looking at developing more supports and resources around supported decision making for AAC users. And um, on, your, on your website, do you, I, I believe that you also um, will post some findings from some of the projects that you have funded. So it's a great website to check just to get some update on some, on some projects. We frequently try to, in our blog section, highlight some of the good work and, you know, kind of where are they now with certain grants. So, yes, please check out our blog. Yeah. We have time for a couple more questions, and then it's going to be lunch. Um, a quick one, John? Yes. So this, I just wanted to appeal to you all from what Dr. Crane said, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, but the, the state of California um, turned CCS from a public health project into a medical or integrated systems of care project. And you might be laughing at what they call that integrated systems of care, but um, those of us in CCS uh, took the whole child model, which is what you had alluded to. That is a pilot project that they want to turn all of CCS into the magic of managed care. And the premise of that was that the department determined that people, children with special health care needs were costing the state a fortune, right? And what Lucy said about uh, care, end-stage renal disease, things like these are expensive. But they thought the, pro the solution to this problem was cost-shifting, so the idea was to give managed care medical organizations a little bit of a capitation increase and they would use the magic of uh, 
managed care to do more with a, do a little more with a little more money. And so the, the idea of, sh of shifting this onto uh, a special category is super important, especially if that extended to adults too. D does that make, can you comment on that a little bit? Yeah, okay. Well, can you say what you just said? I was talking about diagnostic codes, ICD-9 codes. And um, there are um, modifications of the diagnostic codes that are called um, adverse risk diagnoses, like diabetes and HIV and, and end-stage renal disease. So it garners a better level of reimbursement. As Ryan said, money is so important. And if you go where the money is in um, medical reimbursement, it's the ICD-9 codes and the ICD-10 codes. And um, so we're talking about different things. I was not talking about mangled or managed oh. care. <laughs> oh, but I was wondering whether you were talking about for adults, too. Yes. Oh, okay. Primarily for adults. We've got CCS for children. Clarissa Krepke used to get angry with me in discussions because she said, you guys have all the advantages for reimbursement, for services, for PT and OT and speech. And why did children get all of these things and adults don't? Well, it didn't happen overnight. CCS really originated uh, with maternal and child health, which was founded back around the turn of the last century in the early 1900s when uh, child advocates went to the <laughs> uh, child abuse and child welfare organizations and to... Um, actually to the SPCA, yep, Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Animals partnered with <laughs> child advocates in 1912 and founded Maternal and Child Health. And if it weren't for Maternal and Child Health being on the ball when the epidemics of spinal tuberculosis and polio happened in the 30s and 40s, we wouldn't have CCS. I hope we don't have to go to such extremes to really get the ball rolling in terms of the adult services, but I think that it's a multifactorial kind of problem, and it might just help to talk to your legislator. So that's, that is great, and I think this is a good place to, uh, to probably take a break, uh, but we have the message here from our historian, Dr. Crane, that let's take it to the adult world as well. Let's really advocate for that because, uh, because our, our people need it. So thank you so much to the panel. If you have a question, maybe they'll stay for an extra minute. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.